Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm an exercise physiologist. I teach for Globe University, do some coaching course and work for Eat to Perform, and director of education for the Mindset Performance Institute. My name's Carrie Hogan. I'm a nutritionist, yoga teacher, uh, sports massage therapist and personal trainer. Right on. Hey everyone, we have had Carrie on uh, as sort of a roundtable guest in the past, but we thought we'd bring her on and talk a little bit about her background and that sort of thing. Before we do, though, uh, last week I was a little remiss in not offering much uh, science news. Oh, um, bad yeah, geek. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to return to a little bit of that with some uh, late October research uh well late 2015 it's august and october i believe and it's thematic we're gonna after the break talk a little bit about recovery there are so many aspects to uh athletic recovery whether it's local you know tissue level or whether it's like nervous system and more systemic uh so there's so many things but let's get this uh ball rolling here there are two papers that i have in hand right now strength and muscle sport news the first one is uh, actually from August. It's uh, from the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, D- Dahlquist uh, and colleagues. And the title is Plausible Ergogenic Effects of Vitamin D on Athletic Performance and Recovery. Now, it's interesting, but also a little disappointing when I hear something that's it's so theoretical, you know. But it also brings to light what we don't know sometimes. So when you hear something about plausible or... Uh, you know, uh, there's whole journals like medical hypotheses, you know, like evidence-based guesses, basically. It says the purpose of this review is to examine vitamin D in the context of sports nutrition and its role in optimizing uh, athletic performance. And, of course, they talk about vitamin D receptors. Uh, most listeners, I think, realize by this point of, of us rambling that vitamin D, 125-hydroxy-D, uh, it's a hormone, and it'll go right down into your cells and interact with your DNA uh, and that sort of thing. In fact, it actually says, I didn't have a number, it says vitamin D has been shown to play critical roles in the human body and regulates over 900 gene variants. So it's a, truly an over-the-counter hormone uh, here in the States. Um, it says, based on the literature presented, it is plausible vitamin D levels above the normal reference range, up to 100 nanomoles per liter, might increase skeletal muscle function, decrease recovery time from training, increase uh, both force and power production and increase testosterone production, all of which could potentiate athletic performance. And what caught my eye with this is the above reference range, right? So many times in um, bodybuilding and powerlifting, of course, uh, you, you get that more is better mentality because with androgens, as far as you know, muscle mass effectiveness, uh, almost unfortunately on some level, but it is true. Uh, bigger doses mean bigger muscles kind of thing. Uh, but it is interesting to me because a lot of times, like I usually teach in classes, that if you replace a relative deficiency, like omega-3 fats or vitamin D, you get big bang for the buck, right? Because you're actually replacing something you need. Whereas, you know, hyper-physiologic doses don't always pan out. I mean, there are classic examples where they do, like, again, like testosterone or even creatine, but oftentimes you don't see that. Anyway, it says, um, furthermore, it's possible that doses exceeding the recommendations for vitamin D, uh, perhaps 4,000 to 5,000 IUs per day, in combination with 50 to 100 micrograms per day of vitamin K1 and K2, could aid athletic mm-hmm. performance. And again, I th- thought I would toss this out there because uh, the, the, the link with testosterone boosting potentially, uh, it's pretty clear when you look at meta-analyses that muscle strength is enhanced with vitamin D. But this is the mm-hmm. first time I've seen someone specifically speculating on 
you know, above normal levels, you know, higher than reference range uh, and trying to almost dope it in a sense, you know, so. Yeah, my, I guess, sort of issue with that study is exactly what you said, Lonnie, is that it's very hypothetical, especially once you're getting over what is considered sort of the, the okay amount of vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in the study, granted that this came out looks like early in April, uh, there's been a couple of cool studies, actually. My buddy, Dr. John uh, Fitzgerald, was at U of M. I took some classes with him. Uh, he has a new one that just came out in JSCR November of, actually it was a year ago. I think he's got another one that came out a few months ago. He looked at uh, vitamin D status <clears throat> in uh, hockey players. He's got a couple studies on that. And you know, it's not quite as clear of a link. Mm-hmm. And, and just for the listeners, too, that a lot of these studies kind of bug me, like even in the JSSI in, um, article, they were talking about giving pretty high doses to some people and showing benefit, but those people could have been deficient, and they're probably going to show benefit if they're deficient. Um, if you give a higher dose to someone who's not deficient, yeah, much less likely at that yeah, point. Yeah, I saw that quite a bit with the testosterone studies because there are more than right. one. Yeah, yeah, looking at this. And the ones where the guys were low T, it seemed to help. You know, right. So they took like right. some, not necessarily um, hypogonadal, like diagnostically, but yeah, they were sort of middle aged. They were overweight. They were in the low reference range. Yeah. And then this helped those guys. Yeah. So we don't want to think that somebody's walking around, some listener of ours with a, you know, a, a testosterone concentration of seven or 800 on a thousand scale is going to jack themselves beyond that necessarily you know? yeah and with vitamin d it seems like if you're really deficient yeah you know probably helps in terms of performance we know there's tons of data to show it helps with health and a bunch of other stuff you know once you kind of get back into that normal range i haven't seen a lot of really good data showing that it helps beyond that there's a definitely theoretical possibilities but in terms of actual controlled studies i haven't seen too much on yeah, that. yeah i've never seen a paper uh, actually go there, right? This is the first time I've ever seen them actually talk about specifically, you know, becoming hypernormal uh, with your 25-hydroxy-D status and then, you know, ex- maybe expecting or at least hoping for something more. But, right. Uh, I don't know. It's interesting, and like I said, it is interesting that it is horm- a hormone, you know, 900 gene interactions. That's that's pretty interesting to me. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and the Fitzgerald study, too, one thing they mentioned is that uh, they've said insufficient 25-OHD uh, concentration, so marker for vitamin D, uh, was found in about 38% of the athletes that they tested. Good and point. their cutoff yeah. for that was less than 32 nanograms per milliliter. So it is plausible that, you know, especially athletes can be low in vitamin D to start. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, it's a good point, right, that a lot of athletes probably are low D. Um, yeah, especially up here in Minnesota and w- the north. In, in Ohio, no doubt. Ohio. This time of year, oh, boy. Uh, California, I have, probably not as much. Yeah. yeah Carrie, yeah, how far? One, one hopes. One hopes. How far south are you? Are you, Is it um, you guys getting plenty of sunshine where you live there now? Or Yeah, relatively good. I'm, uh, I'm on Coronado, so just uh, – looking across the bay from San Diego and, um, you know, they, the road signs say 10, 15 miles to, to Tijuana, so we're pretty oh. gone southern, I'd say. Yeah, you are. Okay. <laughs> um, all right, before I get too jealous, let me get to the next paper here quickly. Yeah. <laughs> this is um, a little bit different, but twice this semester I have had students present papers that caffeine increases testosterone production. Now, I don't know if you guys have heard of this, but I had not heard of this before, and this is not a single exemplar, just so you know. There are other papers, but this is from Journal of Sports Med, Phys Fitness, uh, October 2015. Uh, Dose effects of caffeine ingestion on acute hormonal responses to resistance exercise. It's by Wu, W-U. Basically, they gave them either low, medium, or high doses of caffeine, so 2 milligrams per kg four milligrams per kg or their high dose was six migs per kg um, about an hour before resistance exercise they had them do two sets i'm sorry two exercises uh three sets each three sets of 10 with 75 percent of their one rep max so it's sort of a generic uh protocol uh and then they took blood samples and here's the results it says the concentrations of testosterone at time zero 
15 minutes and 30 minutes into the session, uh, and cortisol at these same time points at the high dose were significantly increased. And now that's what I remember hearing earlier in the semester too, that it's the higher dose caffeine. And six mg per kg, that's high, but it's not ridiculous. I've seen some papers up in the eight, nine mg per kg range, which is frankly scary to me. Um, But it says, um, however, the responses of insulin at time zero and 15 uh, with the high dose and the medium dose were decreased. And that that's not really surprising to me. I mean, it's sort of the the opposite. You know, you get a lot of the, the sort of the fight or flight effects of the caffeine, and uh, caffeine acutely hampers insulin sensitivity, right? Because insulin's a storage hormone, more of a you know restive digestive side of things. It's I don't want to make it sound purely parasympathetic, but the point is it's a storage hormone, and when you have a lot of caffeine kicking in your body, you're mobilizing. You're more to mobilize the glycogen, mobilize the fat kind of mode, uh, and at medium and high doses of caffeine, it does mess with your your insulin. This is one of the reasons why I'm interested in coffee because, uh, you know, Dr. Nelson knows this, of course. I bet Carrie does too, but coffee in the long term uh, enhances uh, carbohydrate metabolism and insulin sensitivity and whatnot because of some of the other things in the coffee. Whereas uh, acutely, at least, caffeine pills and energy drinks are not going to do that. They're just going to interfere with insulin and arguably even glycogen storage and all that kind of stuff. So, But yeah, so just uh, FYI, listeners, uh, it does look like the higher dose uh, caffeine, uh, I've seen two papers now, that it increased testosterone, of course, it begs the question, though, if it's also increasing cortisol, which is catabolic to your muscles, yeah, are you really that much further ahead? You know, but yeah. And then there's the studies, as you guys know, from Stu Phillips' lab, from Dr. David West, that did a lot of really elegant studies looking at acute increases in testosterone with guys doing uh, leg exercises first and then arm exercises, or vice versa. And they haven't really seen any difference in strength or hypertrophy, right, even yep. though they've gotten a little bit acutely higher testosterone. Not not chronically high levels, but acutely higher levels during training. And they haven't seen any effect. Uh, one Danish group did see a slight effect, but then Stu took their data and showed that there really wasn't an effect if they calculated a little bit different way. Um, so it's pretty debatable, I think, at, even then if... A higher levels of testosterone acutely do much of anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's always the stuff. the time course thing. When we had Darren Willoughby on, he was talking about that too. About if yeah. only you could follow things out always into a meaningful time course. You know, we take a lot of these acute data, and then we kind of assume that that's good for something like hypertrophy in the long run. When we don't really know, you know, you yeah. really don't really know that. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm still, that's still interesting to me, you know. That, oh, it's very interesting. Most people, they take a pre-workout or they, uh, like my, I'll have a big, you know, cup of Via or some kind of strong coffee before I go lift. And it's nice to know that there might be some testosterone advantage there, mm-hmm. you know, even if it is just acutely, I guess. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, did you have anything, Mike, or should we just get to carry? No, I can get to carry. Okay. Uh, so let's let's hear about you then. Um, thanks for your patience there. Uh, My pleasure. You're, yeah, you're uh, really involved. You, you seem to be like a up and coming go getter kind of person. You've got a lot of interest in background sports nutrition and uh, uh, various things. So, uh, how did you get uh, into all this? Was it something a positive experience in sports, or was it an individual thing, a health thing? Why do you do what you do now? Yeah, I, I definitely came in through the through the kind of health uh, healing door. I would say um, I, I often, you know, reflect back if if any of my school peers were to sort of know what I do now, you know, from the from the sports perspective, I think they would just be completely flummoxed. I was not remotely into sports at school. I was, you know, I always say my hand eye coordination is is pretty non existent. Um, you know, I definitely wasn't a very sporty person when I was. Um, I think it was when I was uh, 15. I was allowed to join the, uh, the the join the gym at the you know the, the club where my family were members in mm-hmm. in the UK, and so that was my first experience really. Uh, you know, my first kind of positive experience getting a little more into into fitness as opposed to just um, doing sport in school and 
having that those first experiences of, of weightlifting and, and getting into uh, strength and, and power training and having that be a really powerful um, cultivator for my own sense of strength and physical capability um, in my teen years, uh, you know, especially, I definitely had points where I really wrestled with depression and anxiety and being able to get that gym training element into my life and that, you know, sense that cultivation of strength and kind of, you know, meditation and, and movement became a really awesome um, aid for me um, in, you know, in coming away from that kind of nervousness uh, state and being able to just feel a lot more kind of grounded and steady and strong and capable. Um, I also, from the nutrition perspective, had pretty crushing um, IBS, uh, you know, kind of irritable bowel syndrome uh, conditions through my teen years. And that was something that, you know, my mother was always very interested in, in nutrition and we you know, we would try a little bit of, you know, we, oh, maybe we'll take out dairy for a while, or maybe we'll take out wheat for a while. We kind of tried and tried with that for a lot of years, but it, it took um, initially a, a more a more panoramic uh, kind of elimination approach, more sort of, you know, paleo-style elimination um, diet for, you know, across nine months or so, but, and you know, learning about, you know, little gut healing supplements using L-glutamine, say, or using more, uh, you know, coconut oils and things like that, and getting a little bit more holistic with that whole, uh, you know, gut healing protocol, and also seeing the interaction of healing my gut with, you know, management of anxiety symptoms or depression symptoms, and really getting hooked and learning about the, you know, the gut-brain axis, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the last few years, there's been this huge expansion of interest around the gut and around, say, probiotics and fermented foods and all that kind of thing. And I, my whole, you know, recovery period coming up through my, my teens and early 20s was really riding the wave of that expansion of interest around the gut. And, uh, you know, in the last few years, too, perhaps a little bit, um, you know, off the back of, of, say, CrossFit, you know, I think a lot more women have been getting into weight training and weightlifting and that sort of thing. So I've, I've been able to ride that, that cultural wave, I, I'd say, in terms of my own personal interests growing in, in that arena. I, I uh, went to university, did some undergraduate studies in philosophy and psychology, and then ultimately, uh, you know, kind of rerouted and went into vocational training for uh, for you know, for personal training, for teaching yoga, for uh, you know, I did the uh, International Society of Sports Nutrition's postgraduate diploma for my my nutrition qualifications and uh, some sports massage therapy, and ultimately, you know, based on my own very sort of a holistic approach to healing, healing my body, healing my gut, getting a sense of physical strength and physical capability in the gym, overcoming that anxiety and, and depression from that very holistic standpoint, I became in turn a very holistically minded practitioner. So I really enjoy having that sort of variety of services and approaches that I can take with, with each client because uh, it just really means that you're serving the whole person and you're considering the whole person and able to treat and you know, not fix every, every part of them and not attempt to, but just be able to kind of consider and, and speak to and discuss uh, and address those, you know, different facets. Maybe one day they need more myofascial release or manipulation or yoga therapy or another day, you know, they've had good sleep and they can do more weight training or, or they had no sleep and you just need to sit and do a nutrition consult and really help pick over, you know, where they are at that time and do some troubleshooting on, on that front. So that's kind of my my story of how I became the rather holistic practitioner that I that I am now. Right. It's an interesting mix because I think, uh, and uh, Mike, I know you can identify with this, but so many times when you march through your education, you, you're expected to specialize more and more. I mean, by the time most people are a professor in something, I mean, like I right now, I mostly just look at coffee and resistance training. That's that's yeah. very specific, you know. And 
uh, my advisor was all about, you know, resistance training and, and protein intake and that sort of thing. And, you know, Mike did his dissertation on energy drinks and a lot of the interactions with the nervous system. And so, uh, so often I think you get people who where we necessarily specialize and that can be good because then you can dig and delve into uncharted areas, you know, where there's gaps yeah. in the literature, but then, uh, from a clinical perspective, uh, it's it's almost like you're a general practitioner, physician type mm-hmm. person, but but you know for for wellness in a sense, you know, and yeah. it, it gives it a, a that that broader perspective. I think there's something to be said for that too, you know. Thank you. Well, I I, I think we need both. You know, we we the more general folk need the specialists in order to be able to present you know evidence based practice and you know sound science and be reputable practitioners and uh, and you know and, and so that we that you know the specialists and, and the more general guys on the you know down with the, the general public we, we, we need each other Absolutely. yeah there's no I was ju- actually joking just yesterday there's no doubt that oftentimes and I I don't know how many of our listeners are still students or just a student in life or however it works but Oftentimes, I've been exposed to this uh, almost battle between clinicians and researchers. You know, the researchers sort of scoff and they look at some of the clinic, clinical type people, practitioner type people, and they say, "Oh, well, you don't even have a postdoc," you know, and they're right. so they're so arrogant. And then and then the clinicians are saying, "Well, you just futz around in the lab. I'm where the rubber meets the road." You know, the clinical side is the pinnacle of the profession, and of course. You need that reciprocation between the two for any of this to work. You know, there's a discovery made, then the clinical person says, yeah, that really panned out, or uh, almost. Can you try this or this? Uh, The question is actually slightly different than maybe you posed the first time. You know, then the researcher tweaks it and comes up, and then ultimately you get better evidence-based practice, you know, because of this reciprocation. Yeah. I mean, that was a, a huge theme with the uh, my International Society of Sports Nutrition Studies was always, uh, you know, we can have the, uh, the, the, the most lofty science, but if, if you can't understand your client and, and apply what, you know, the science that they need to them and help them apply it, I mean, you, you, you may as well just not, not show up. Yeah. Um, so you have to have those soft skills and the science in order to really help people. Right. Yeah. And I think that's where there's sometimes a disconnect, too, because if I did X with a client and I could then later show that there's 17 research studies that says X should not work, <laughs> but it worked for that particular client for yeah. who knows what reason, yeah. the client doesn't care. They're not going right. to be like, oh, it's not research-based. They just want a result. I think a lot of times we should use research to guide our general direction and yeah let's you know start over in this area because we know this is most likely to help instead of Mm -hmm. starting way out in left field but at the end of the day when you're you know working with clients it's the result is what they're interested you're just using research and knowledge and everything else as a tool to get there faster and safer Mm, absolutely Okay, well, we're pressed for time a little bit, so let's go to break. And when we come back, we're going to jump into our topic. Uh, We're going to address athletic recovery, uh, focusing, I think, first on Carrie's sort of holistic approach to some of this. And it'll be a nice uh, summary of all the different systems and approaches, I think, that might be able to help people uh, with recovery from their training. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, There's an enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. 
You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, We'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. I can't stop feeling Some of us don't understand How lucky we are To be living in Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Every week it's been our privilege to bring you weekly news, experts, and gym talk. Did you know that now roughly 20,000 brothers and sisters of Iron count on us for these things? Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in, $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everybody, we are back. It's uh, Drs. Nelson and Lowry, and it's Carrie Hogan joining us today, and we're going to talk about uh, athletic recovery, not just muscle recovery, although that's part of it, uh, but athletic recovery. And when we left off before the break, I had mentioned that uh, Carrie has such a great holistic approach to a lot of this stuff, and I think by her own words. So let's start with that, Carrie. Uh, Maybe run down some of the different approaches or systems that are involved if people are interested in actually uh, not falling apart and recovering and getting back to training and, and staying healthy. Mm. So the the panoramic picture that I that I would take when it comes to optimizing or accelerating recovery would cover a whole different number of facets. You know, first first one obviously would be various nutrition items. Um, you know, timing and type of different macronutrients. There are, you know, a few supplements that we can speak to, things like that. Then the nutrition, you can play into uh, immune support. You can play into uh, anti-inflammation. And that's something that obviously we don't necessarily drive in tons of, um, you know, anti-inflammatory protocols right after training. If someone's trying to create a lot of adaptations, you know, you, you may use it if someone's doing a number of events in a row and they needed to just really recover um, very quickly and adaptation isn't a priority. Um, but, you know, that, so immune support, anti-inflame support, uh, general kind of stress reduction um, so that the, the immune system's able to, to stay strong. 
And then, you know, beyond that, the nutrition items that we'll speak to, lifestyle stuff like applying applying yoga and mobility work, uh, you know, maybe using stuff like foam rollers and therapy balls, um, active recovery, maybe things like using sauna, using steam rooms. Um, so there's a whole, you know, whole kind of life-wide photo that we can take, not just food, but immune function, sleep, you know, recovery, um, and different little practices in that active recovery field that can just get you delivering what the body needs to recover, to create change, to be back to its, you know, strongest point um, quicker, um, that, you know, that there's a lot that, that can be done. Right. Uh, no doubt. Uh, in fact, we, when we had Eva T on, you know, a lot of her thrusts seem to be about monitoring yourself so you can essentially not fall apart, you know, yeah. and about and how sometimes people beat themselves up to the point that, she said a few things that were disturbing, disturbingly true, I think, which was sometimes people, they overtrain to the point, they end up with full-blown um, overtraining syndrome. And, Mike, mm-hmm. you and I were talking about this, too. But, yeah. I mean, extended, I mean, that's actually defined in the literature as even eight weeks of bed rest won't fix it. And, I mean, yeah. holy cow. And, and then she was saying how some people she feels may never pick up the pieces. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing to me that, you know, you can do such yeah. damage uh, to yourself that you know you're never picking up or unmixing the pot I think is what she said <laughs> so um, on uh, on the monitoring side um, uh, we were talking a lot in last week about uh, sympathetic versus parasympathetic nervous system and that sort of thing and uh, and I think we actually had guests on the program before they were so focused on individual muscles that I think they've forgotten about the systemic sort of central effects uh, for example, we had one guy on a couple of years ago, and his workout split was literally one muscle group a day. He would train every single yeah. day, biceps, mm-hmm. and then the next day triceps, then deltoids, then pecs, then lats, then traps. Then, And although he's getting a probably a nice seven or eight days between working a specific local muscle group, I think he's probably frying himself centrally. I mean, if he's putting in any type of volume at all. Um does you the know. SEM get its own day? What's that? Thermocladomastoid. <laughs> 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 right. No, exactly. Uh, well, but- and, and, and in turn, you know, you can, people could be so dialed in on, say, their nutrition, but give, you know, but get six hours sleep a night. And so their recovery is never going to truly be optimal. Or, you know, they have, they have rock star sleep okay nutrition but their mobility is just horrible so so their training you know they're never truly going to be able to give that absolute best in training because their range of motion is is 60 percent of what it could be so you know that's when when you can you know broaden out your lens to consider all these different uh you know pies that you can poke your finger into in order to to make that best best recovery and you know kind of best practice you know within your health it's it's pretty empowering you know it's pretty amazing to to see where you can take yourself when you really attend to all the different facets and you don't have to be 100% on all of them but if you can get 70 80% the majority of the time on you know all these different little aspects that's you know that's Pretty darn good. You know that might be a good message to listeners. I think this week is uh, because I am I am guilty of not doing what you just said. In other words, like everything I do with recovery is so nutritional, nutritionally oriented. Uh, but that's only one piece of the pie. And I really I've actually had people say, Lonnie, God, you've never done any soft tissue work of any kind. You know, you're <laughs> mid forties. You've got to be just a ball of adhesive scar tissue. You know, and there's no doubt when I was. When I was very young and I was, now I was in martial arts, so I was stretching all the time, but I was incredibly limber. You know, I could drop into any kind of split without a warm up and that sort of thing. And uh, that would tear me in half right now. <laughs> it, would not, it would not be good. And so sometimes I think I really need some of that. You know, I've had some friends that did like the, the fascial release uh, kinds of things. And um, I, I really need to make an effort to do that because, like I said, mm-hmm. everything I do is I'm probably a good boy. On You know, I got the omega-3s down and the vitamin D and the, the uh, slightly higher dose protein uh, kind of things. And um, 
I could do better on the vegetables and that sort of stuff, but I do take antioxidants at times, like when I'm very sore, although that's debatable, but it's always nutrition, 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 you know, and mm-hmm. the, the psychological stuff. Now, I know straightforward from some of the readings I've done in my dissertation that it's the, a lot of times it's the subjective markers or it's the more mood or psychology related markers that are actually more sensitive. And mm-hmm. I just saw a paper this fall that supports that uh, because for the longest time I thought, listen, you know, you want to look at muscle soreness and, you know, creatine kinase concentrations in your blood. That's, it's almost a elevated or not thing. You know, you got to be very careful looking at this on a scale, like more CK is more and more damage. Um, Priscilla Clarkson used to warn against that, but l- listen to this quick, quickly. I just printed this off. This is from Saw and colleagues, British Journal of Sports Med, and it is that holistic type thing, really. Monitoring the athlete training response. Subjective self-reported measures trump commonly used objective measures. A systematic review. So they systematically reviewed objective and subjective measures of athlete well-being. They did, um, I think they looked at 56 original papers uh, looking at the subjective and objective. Let me just jump to the summary here. This review provides further support for practitioners to use subjective measures to monitor changes in athlete well-being in response to their training. Subjective measures may stand alone or be incorporated into a mixed methods approach to athlete monitoring uh, and is, as is current practice in many sports settings. So I, I, that's one of the things that I, I've often said we need to have more of on the, the podcast here is you know, the psychology, all of it, because you can't separate mind and body. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing hokey about the mind body connection. It's not just a spiritual thing, although it could be, but you know, there, the neuroendocrine system is, is real. Placebo effect is real. I mean, that's about as hard of connection between the two as you can find. And there's tons of data to support that. Indeed. In fact, we're presenting some stuff in at, uh, Experimental biology in San Diego, that's about that, actually. Yeah, so no doubt. You know, just just to quickly just expand the lens or, you know, build a little motivation even perhaps around that uh, mobility, um, you know, flexibility side of things. Like, you know, it's it's not just great for sort of, you know, uh, being able to, you know, show off in the gym, get get your foot behind your head, kind of do do all, you know... um, Showing off. I think Mike does um, that. It's oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talking going Only on. on Thursdays. <laughs> but you know, if if you can, if if you're able to display flexibility, it's that you know that is a central nervous system thing at its at its root. In that you don't you know a lot of people think oh my muscles are getting longer somehow. You know it's it's not like your fiber you know your fibers are growing longer it's that your central nervous system is learning that it can permit the muscle to stretch longer that it's not going to break that you're not going to tear you know something like that so it's it's the central nervous system being calmer and more trusting with the body as you try to use it to stretch it and move into these different positions so you know greater flexibility could could imply better kind of central nervous system state and calm and you know kind of total function so you can you, know, you could arguably broaden out the lens on things like flexibility and you know healthy range of movement and you know soft tissue work to let that be something that is also a sign of that healthy central nervous system greater sort of parasympathetic rest and digest state that you know is is a part of that total stress management picture and a a lower stress picture overall whereby the body is able to have stronger immune function and less of an you know inflammatory mode and more of a recovery steady strong healthy nourished mode that it exists in Mm -hmm. i think especially those of us who are more uh, on the anxiety side racing Mm -hmm. thoughts more high strung uh, I, I agree with that very much. I mean, there's the the mind body connection really goes both ways. You know, you oftentimes you think mm-hmm. I'm I'm stressed and I'm tense, so you know mentally, so then my muscles become that way. But yeah. a lot of those motor neurons are two way streets. I mean, once uh, Fortress and I actually did a discussion about um, like f- even with just your face and your cranial mm-hmm. nerves. Like if you scowl or you see other people scowling, you start to psychologically 
get contracted and, and wound yeah. up. Uh, whereas if you purposely relax your jaw and your brow line and that sort of stuff, it actually sends, you know, feedback to your brain that you're in a more relaxed state. And it's, it's almost right. bizarre that you yeah. can think if I, if I try to make, if I'm aware of my facial features or like you're saying, almost your whole body is more supple and, and relaxed, allowed to stretch out and relax, that's got to have benefits as far as. Uh, reduced anxiety or just feeling calmer and more stable and that sort of thing. You know? Yeah, no doubt. But the, the, the week before I moved to uh, to this San Diego area, which was uh, eight weeks ago today, um, I saw this this study just uh, mentioning that when people wore sunglasses, their their stress hormone levels were lower compared compared to oh. with people who who weren't wearing them out in the mm. sun. And it was because, you know, if you're out in the sun without your sunglasses on, you're more likely to kind of be squinting and have that sort of more anxious facial expression. Wow. And the brain is obviously, you know, the brain is always observing the body. It's always observing the muscular system. And if you're kind of squinting and straining in your face, the brain's going to say, oh, what's up? You know, let's prep ourselves with a little stress hormone here because something's evidently going on or about to go down. So it was like, all right, great. You know, don't forget your sunglasses if you're going to the sun. Mm. Keep calm. Right. I get a lot of flack for this, but I think that it, it extends along the same lines that when I have clients uh, lifting and even myself, I try to keep my face relatively calm. Like yeah. if you go back and look at like the old tapes of like the Russian weightlifters, you know, these guys would walk out on stage, look like they're going to fall asleep, and mm-hmm. they would, like, clean and jerk some world record, mm-hmm. and then they'd, you know, walk off stage like he's going to pass out again. Um, but I thought it was very interesting how they could do those super hard transitions from being completely off to being completely on. And then if you watch a lot of, I would say, advanced uh, lifters in general, not always, um, more so in athletics, not quite so much in powerlifting, but... Most of the ones that are really good, if you were just to watch their face, they look relatively calm, even though they're doing some pretty insane things. So I've often wondered, because of that sort of uh, feedback loops, that if you're always making the world's biggest sourpuss face, are you mm-hmm. sort of telling your body that the lift or their performance is harder than what it actually is? Mm-hmm. Instead of the reverse, you know, trying to do something that is at your limit, but trying to convince your body that it's within your capability and it's actually easier. So Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a little woo-woo. But. Yeah, I think a lot of that depends on people who are, if your base personality, if you're more type A or type B, uh, I don't know. That could be individual, but it does make sense. I mean, why would you add the additional stressor, like you said, like right. instead convince your body that this is just something that I do? Yeah, you're yeah. not lifting with your face. I mean, there obviously is going to be yeah. a byproduct of muscular tension and, and things of that. But, you know, squinting at the weight is not going to move it. But <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Hey, Carrie, let me uh, extend this conversation, too, because of your background with IBS and whatnot. Mm. Um, uh, all the way through undergrad and even into grad school, I was always thinking like a one-way street. Like if, if people who are more anxious, um, more high-strung, they tend to have you know, irritable bowel. And it, and I just thought it must be something that genetically, you know, you have more fight or flight types of stress hormones, you know, uh, epi, nor epi, cortisol, whatever's going on. Or, but I'm starting to think it's a two-way street. Is that fair? Like, in other words, if you're anxious, it could worsen your risk of some of these conditions. But the flip side of this is if you have these conditions, what we know about the microbiome now, they might be going the other way just like I was talking about with facial, you know, nerves and whatnot, you could be getting messages from your gut that are actually making you feel more anxious or somehow negative in some way. Does that is that making any sense? Yeah, absolutely. I would I would absolutely agree with that. And I, you know, I had a I didn't have a optimal diet at that time. It was you know super super kind of processed carb heavy, um, probably a little bit sugar reliant and that, you know, that definitely doesn't take the gut microbiome in, in, in the right direction. But, you know, being very grain heavy um, as opposed to having more veggies and that sort of thing. And so I think I was absolutely taxing, uh, you know, my gut uh, as well. And, you know, the gut bacteria wasn't in a great state. And But the other thing that I think is 
huge in terms of my my history with that IBS um, was that when I was 13 or, or 14, that was when my um, my first experiences of, of depression began to happen, and uh, and and my uh, I actually, well, no, I, I take that back. When I was 13 or 14, I began to get quite bad acne, which was something that just kind of ran in my family. Um, and I was put, you know, as is often done, I was put on um, antibiotics in order to, you know, seemingly uh, treat that. Mm-hmm. And whether it was just a, something with the National Health Service in the UK, I was just left on repeat prescriptions for those. And I took those antibiotics, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're strong ones uh, every day for about um, four years. Oh, wow. So my Jeez. gut bacteria and my whole kind of gut environment would have just been completely obliterated, you know, out at sea. Um, so... I, you know, I think that that just total kind of obliteration of, of one's gut from a very long-term uh, and, uh, antibiotic consumption is something that as well was very, very possibly um, throwing off that gut-brain axis and laying a pathway for, you know, poor gut bacteria for any that could exist down there or, you know, anxiety signals coming up from, from the gut poor digestion, poor nutrient absorption, therefore, and that all, again, feeding forward to create a sense of internal stress in the body, feeding a sense of anxiety uh, within the brain, you know, that sort of thing. So, again, our whole um, antibiotic culture now, or hyper-hygiene culture, is is a, an interesting, uh, you know, area to consider as well. Right. Hey, uh, so if you're going to work with a client, and you're going to be... Um sort of uh, their life coach, they come to you, they want the whole package, and they're interested in, uh, maybe they have some slight maldigestion issues, or, you know, they're interested in the gut connection and uh, and recovery from their athletic training, or all those sorts of things. What are, what are some recommendations that sometimes you give, or considerations you have them make, uh, if they want to enhance gut fu- function, or, you know, how that ties in with holistic health and that kind of thing yeah yeah well first port of call is is always to really seek to understand where they are you know their life their environment the demands that are being put on them the you know especially the gut stuff the you know the kind of stress environment in which they're they're existing so what are you know are there what is their new you know, what is their nutrition coming in? Are they possibly quite nutritionally stressed? Is there much nourishment coming in, you know, aside from any of the absorption stuff or assimilation stuff that we would later come to? Um, so I would seek to understand, you know, an average day, so the sort of things that they're eating, mm-hmm. see if there are any, uh, you know, really glaring items there in terms of nutrient density or, um, you know, a lot of processed food or kind of inflammatory um, items there or just sort of poor timing of different nutrition you know maybe if there's someone who's very active and they're just not getting sufficient carbohydrate coming in say or you know if they're very loyal to a low carb approach but they're doing a lot of training and that's just going to be really stressing or even kind of frying out their central nervous system stuff like that Um, looking to whether they've got, you know, sufficient vitamin D. If they had any blood work done recently, do they know what their vitamin D status is? Do they take fish oils? Um, Looking into things like, are there any fermented foods in their diet, probiotics, prebiotic foods as well? Do they, um, you know, beginning to consider what their gut microbiota might be looking like, what their gut bacteria could be looking like? Um, I would speak to them about sleep, about caffeine, about, uh, you know, their total mental stresses as well, whether they are able to be doing the requisite kind of recovery, uh, you know, deep REM sleep. Uh, are they, you know, are they pounding the coffee into the into the evening or do they just keep it in the morning? So maybe by the time they get to the evening, there isn't too much caffeine going around in, in circulation still and they're going to be able to drop down into that good, good REM sleep. 
um, look at you know look at their training load in in general. You know, we know that training obviously is perceived as a as a stress on the body. We need to create that stress in order to adapt to get stronger. So it's having that that good dose, that appropriate dose of, of stress, the right amount of training relative to the other stresses and demands of, of their life and striking that good balance. You know, obviously Mike's kind of a HRV guru. You could look into <laughs> a little heart rate variability, get you know, get some readings on them that way or or equally, you know, as we were saying, people people generally know deep down, you know, kind of how, how they're doing. Um, but, you know, so, sometimes they don't. Sometimes, if you, you know, you're a real workhorse and you just don't like to think about it and you may be a little ignorant to that stuff. But there's a lot that we can oftentimes put our hands up and say, yeah, I, you know, I know I'm pushing it a little hard. But, you know, it's it, it's a tough one, say, because if especially if you're a little type A or you're super into your training, it, it can be a huge stress management tool that you use. And so, you know, like you don't want to give it up. I I, I want to go to the gym every day and do stuff. It's my, it's my means of calming down. You know, they they might say so. Finding ways to integrate though things like, uh, you know, help them find a yoga class they like, or maybe they get into, uh, you know, doing doing a hot yoga class once or twice a week or something. Um, and obviously that can be quite an intense thing for the body to go through. But if you can, if they were doing intense resistance training, and you could maybe slice out one of those for a good yoga class a day a week and you know just help to kind of balance out the the demands that, that you're asking of the body balancing out some of the total stress that you're asking of, of the body and and that come the reason why I just it seems like an epic tangent but the reason why I just expand the lens that wide not just from nutrition or a um, you know, but also into training stuff when it comes to, to, to gut function is is just that, you know, as I said, exercise, it's obviously perceived as a stress on the body. And that affects the, the gut permeability, the kind of tension uh, or, you know, tightness be- between the, the junctions of, of all the, you know, the different sort of cells of, of the gut wall. And we know that when we, when we train hard for a an hour or two, perhaps after after training, the gut the gut's a little bit less uh, resilient or, or mm. kind of you know it can be a little more leaky, you could Remember say, than, yeah, than, um, than 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 usual. So if we're constantly training hard, if we're constantly stressing the body, then the gut can be constantly in that slightly leaky kind of permeable state, which which can feed forward into, you know, a non-ideal situation for the body in terms of nutrient absorption or, uh, you know, total health, um, immune function, that sort of thing. So some things that I have used for, for a number of years from, from the gut recovery, you know, strong gut approach, uh, one is, you know, the supplement L-glutamine. I have a tablespoon of that after you know into my shake um after training um or especially you know if i wake up and i'm a little sore throaty and feeling a little kind of glandy um i'll have some extra glutamine that day because there's there's some relatively sound uh you know evidence around l-glutamine helping to uh, restore that kind of resiliency in in the gut wall post-training uh make it less permeable um and that's a really helpful item as well for keeping immune function really strong. It means that we're not having undigested food or pathogens leaking out of the gut into circulation and becoming these kind of foreign bodies in circulation that the immune system has to launch a hyper-response against. Um, so L-glutamine can be something to utilize post-training or as an everyday supplement. You know, it's sometimes suggested for individuals who are dealing with, uh, you know, with, say, Crohn's disease or something where, you know, the gut's in a really angry state. Um, it can be an interesting one. It, L-glutamine also, we, we think, you know, there's some evidence around it um, accelerating glycogen repletion post-training, so it can be a kind of little post-workout aid. Um, and then, in, you know, things like getting people on a good dose 
multi-strain probiotic supplement is, you know, is, is brilliant. Or, you know, if they like kimchi or sauerkraut or, you know, any of that kind of fermented food stuff, you know, raw cheese, if they digest it well, you can get some of that in, in the mix. And even chatting to them a little bit about prebiotic foods that kind of primes um, the, the gut bacteria as well, they can... You know, doing some cooked cooled potatoes, the resistant starch, or having some more beans, or just lots of green veggies. Um, having that fiber content in the diet, that you know, fermentable fibers coming down that helps to feed the good gut bacteria uh, in in the gut. You know, just a few things that you can do to really help someone get gut strong. Um, so you know, managing total stress good sleep, uh, you know, appropriate training loads, maybe a bit of L-glutamine, things like coconut fats and having um, unprocessed saturated fats in, in, in the diet, you know, a good quality uh, grass-fed organic butter, that sort of thing. But, you know, the coconut fats definitely seem to be quite good ones for soothing the gut, again, helping kind of re-seal or, you know, heal, heal the gut lining. Um, there's some uh, nice you know, nice evidence uh, around you know using using coconut oil for sort of you know soothing the gut as well. That can um, become. I just say to people, you know, you may like to use that as a more first port of call. Cooking fat, say, you know, it's a very stable stable fat to to, to heat when when you're cooking. Um, can be a nice one for for the gut. Uh, and as I said, probiotics and prebiotic foods, they all. They all play forward to to create a healthy gut in, environment. You know, Carrie, it's an interesting perspective that you're uh, you're providing nutrients not so much for yourself as for your partners in your gut. Mm. You know, so yeah. here's here's the coconut fat. Uh, here's um, you know what the gut bacteria are looking for, whether they're going to metabolize those into something that you need or you're cultivating certain populations. Because I think most athletes, most weight trainers, when they hear about glutamine, frankly, they'll, they'll misunderstand or misuse it, thinking that somehow it's going to be an anabolic agent or help them, right. you know, um, build muscle. I mean, there's any role with glutamine. It's, it's arguably maybe something with the immune system and, or almost almost certainly I would think some advantage through the gut like you were saying so yeah. but it's interesting to the people need to recognize that you are not alone most of your DNA by weight is not even your own you oh, know yeah. and it's just very interesting that you're you're feeding your allies instead of trying to think about something like systemic like oh coconut that saturated fat won't that hurt my heart and it's like mm. well you're you're being too narrow in what it might be able to do for some of your gut bacteria, for example, you know, or mm. the lining of your gut. Yeah. So. And, anyway. you know, and you could even extend it to, to things like, um, you know, if you go a little down the anti-inflammatory road, uh, having people cook a little more with, uh, with, um, with the curry spices, with turmeric, using, using some ginger, these are, you know, amazing sort of anti-inflammatory spices, you know, antioxidant-rich foods like, you know, having a tablespoon of cocoa, you know, just plain cocoa going into your your post-workout shake, things like that. Um, having, uh, you know, having all those veggies in your diet, you're getting a, a you know, nice amount of fiber coming down, healthy elimination, healthy colon, you know, just keeping keeping the, uh, the whole kind of tract of, of the gut you know, kind of fresh and, and clear and healthy. So you can you can extend this down a lot of different roads. That's a little bit more the sort of anti-inflammatory road. But you know, if you're less inflamed, there's you could argue there's going to be a calmer immune system just because the total sense of stress in the body is down. So you're off red alert, and the immune system's able to come up and function um, in order to you know attend to all its everyday maintenance jobs that it may not be able to attend to if you're hugely inflamed and chronically stressed and you haven't slept and you know the body just goes into fight and flight mode you know it just is trying to put out fires right all the time to, yeah um, yeah there's so many live. so many directions uh with this recovery thing i think it's good for listeners to just get the idea that uh yeah. there are many approaches and uh like i said i'm guilty myself is I tend to focus too much on one 
Whereas mm-hmm. maybe some of the stretching, soft tissue stuff, I mean, it might be worth having a whole episode just on flexibility and yoga yeah. in the future. Yeah. You know, There's so much to say for it. Yeah. yeah. From the last couple of things on, on, on the, the nutrition front, uh, one thing that, you know, you see with people who are doing a lot of training or especially, you know, perhaps Lonnie, you could speak to this in that sort of bodybuilding environment. They could be, you know, their proteins could be all tilapia or you know white fish or, or chicken breast or you know white meat and they may not have a lot of, of the darker meat or red meat coming in you know in their diet and just want to make sure that you you know you've got some of, of those iron rich proteins coming in just so you you know you're not going to end up anemic and feeling just sapped you know in, in the gym so having you know a blend with your proteins white and dark meat you can get iron too from from seafood like mussels and clams and oysters and you know mollusks that you know they, they've got a little bit of iron you know going for them as well so you know just a- attending to that and the other thing with nutrition we you know we talk about the food post training but it's easy to forget the, the the hydration point and i'm you know i i, I don't love plain water to me it's it's pretty boring but i i'll put my hands up and say i you know i use a little crystal light and stuff in, in my water around training just to make sure that i'm getting those you know that liter or, or you know if, if here we are you know here i am in southern california it's, it's pretty warm out doing a lot of activity i need a good few liters a day and if it mean you know if it makes the difference if i know i'm going to get the fluid in by using a little crystal light or something and you know maybe a pinch of sea salt or using some extra salt on your food if if you're sweating a lot making sure you're keeping that electrolyte balance in your body as well those are you know two two items that are going to help you keep feeling you know having having the right iron status and keeping your electrolytes and and your fluids coming in are just going to be basic platform things to keep your sense of energy and fortitude up in you know in the gym and and day to day as well Mm -hmm. yeah so holistic so many things involved really yeah body functions as a whole and we especially in the research land we tend to want to look at one little area which is good but we sometimes forget that it's all connected in multiple ways and it's redundant on top of everything else too Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, good stuff. Thanks for joining us, Carrie. Yeah, thank you very much for being on the show today. Thank you. Yeah, it would be great any time to talk the, talk the yoga mobility stuff or, you know, go down some immune tangents. Uh, it would be great. But thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. Absolutely. Okay, everybody. Well, uh, we'll be back next week. Phil is, uh, by the way, in his truck on the way to a big meet this morning, so he couldn't join All us. Right. But we'll be back with the usual crew next week. See you guys. Bye. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the 
bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.